No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and this week on the program we have part two of my wide-ranging and... Uh, very bizarre interview with Brenda Hartman. She was so kind to speak to me at length, and it was really kind of a natural delineation point that I was able to split the first half talking about more the services that she offers to the world, and this half is more of her personal introspection and her sharing her amazing experiences with uh, death and actually having post-life things happening and how they've affected her and how she perceives it. We also talk a bit about ritual and... Uh, different perspectives that we've gotten as well as what her next steps are going to be in the world so this was a really cool talk I really I can't thank Brenda enough I know I was just effusively grateful and so thankful when she was here that um I just really can't say enough good about her she just was so kind and so open to share her time and her experience so thank you Brenda I really appreciate it um again her website is www.healingthroughlife.com if you have any questions, comments, feedback, I would love to hear it. Uh, send it to yourdead2 at gmail.com, yourdead2 on Twitter and Instagram. I'm happy to interact and let you know what's going on. If there's anything that I'm digging into, I'm currently actually reading Being Mortal that Brenda had recommended, so I'll be happy to uh, give kind of a post-mortem, not to make a pun. I'm sorry, that was bad. Uh, you know, a, a post-read look on the book and what I've taken away from it. I know other listeners have read that book as well and that it's a respected text, so that'll be interesting for me. I'm also thinking about this coming uh, month in July. I've got another episode here ready to go for next week, but it looks like I'm going to be taking about a month off to spend uh, doing some research and lining up some more guests to just make sure that I've got the content that I want to be able to really give to the world, that it's um, up to snuff, up to personal guidelines. So I want to be able to really take time to dig into that, so that'd be the month of July that I'm going to release one final episode here on the 2nd, and then uh, take about four weeks off to talk with people, do some reading, and do some uh, deep diving to figure out what the next steps will be here, but I'm excited to kind of recharge and hit the ground running, but as always, thank you so much for listening, I can't thank you enough, and uh, enjoy. Yeah, no amount of money ever bought another second at time, right? Right. You just can't. There's no going back. And so when you're here, let's be here. Yeah. And that's, and not just the trite notion of phones and looking at screens, but just genuinely being in moments. And that's, again, just not to hold my kiddo up as a, you know, talisman against all evil in the world, but like that's, it's just been a learning lesson for me of just slow down and enjoy the little. Like, this is going to sound so cornball, but, like, <laughs> when the weather has been nice, I, we will sleep with the windows open, and I sleep closer to the window, and I can feel the breeze I'm just far enough away that I can just feel the breeze just touch my nose and my eyes when I'm sleeping and go absolutely no farther. It just stops right there. It doesn't make it to my ears. It's just right to my nose, and it's the most amazing, strange little feeling of it's so personal and private, I do kind of regret sharing it a little bit just because it's such a weird little moment, but those little things of, I, you know, when I'm worrying about 
what I'm going to do the next day or all the things I need to get done, those kinds of things give me peace of just, that's just noise, man. That's not, yes, I need to focus on getting those things done, but worrying about them now at night is not going to get them done. And yes, anxiety and worry have causes and they have a place in the world, you know, without some level of spidey sense, we would all just be walking around touching the stove too much and not being mindful. Like we need some parameters in place to feel guarded against bad things happening. But beyond a practical standpoint, letting go of that worry is difficult for me. But I actually found it really freeing to recently hear, to tie back into what you said, that um, I forget the hard numbers exactly, but the notion that we really only live in like 10 to 15 percent of our memories, that the things that we can remember and recall, and then the, the things on top of that that are worth remembering and recalling, important moments, conversations we had with people, beneficial information, that it's like 10% of our life experience. It's some small fraction of a number. And that by and large, you're not going to remember this. And that's, it might sound nihilistic to say that, which <laughs> is again something I've been talking with my own therapist about of just how do I deal with anxiety without just saying screw it all and just being nihilistic but it's freeing to know you don't have to make this a perfect memory you don't have to make this into you know the right way to answer a question or the right response to a stimuli you know that just be in the moment you're probably not going to remember it if like this is going to if you're going to be a goldfish and you're going to forget this in five minutes you can be happy you know you can try to enjoy the moment because if there's no consequence to it why not at least enjoy it you know if it's you know, I, I think um, being in the moment means you get to have all your feelings and all your experiences. Yeah. So it's not just about being happy. It's about being what you are. So when you are happy, you know that you are happy. And your daughter is an amazing teacher because at two and a half, she doesn't know how not to be in the moment. She just <laughs> yes is. yeah okay and that's the beauty of um, her where her brain is developed at this moment yeah and so and you can that's such a fun age because you can you can watch her mind churning and and figuring things out and then you know there's so many other concepts that she doesn't even worry you know she doesn't know time she's not worried about taxes or the environment yet she doesn't know time so she doesn't worry about what do I do tomorrow. Or what am I going to do in five minutes? It's all just now. It's just she lives in now. And so she's such, you know, that's such a gift. And that's the other, I have this remarkable father who's 88 and just an amazing human being. And listening to him, I mean, his, sometimes his life is busier than mine and all the bands and choirs and golfing and all the stuff that he does. <laughs> but he has a way of being present because he doesn't have that same, you know, he's a retired teacher and, you know, working with the students and he's a musician and all of that, you know, what he was trying to do um, when I was growing up. And now to listen to him and, you know, even though he's, he's on a way to another concert that, and whatever, that 
during the day, it's like, oh, you know, I mowed the lawn, I weeded for a while, I took the dog for a walk. He's being present. And so that's a, you know, when we have these bookends of people around us, mm. it's helpful to remind us that in, in the midsection of life, we are working really hard to do food, clothing, shelter. Yeah. And so once we can get that to hum enough, then we can really, because, you know, I love my job. I have an exceptional job because I get to be with people and I get to love them and really have an intimate experience with them. Um, yet when I'm diagnosed again, I'm not going to be working. Do you think of that in terms of an inevitability, knowing that you've had very aggressive cancer in the past? Is it a matter of you medically understand the likelihood of coming back or just the fact that, like, well, every something takes everybody? That uh, How about D, all of the above? And I, dying from cancer is a nice death. Really? Okay, there's a lot of people that are freaking out hearing that Yeah, right I was say it's a lot of, like, hey, no. <laughs> but um, you get to say goodbye. You get to know where you are, and if you're if you're um, conscious about it, you get to decide how much treatment you want and how much you don't want. Yeah, and so you get to be in charge in a different way. If you're, you know, I, I'm not afraid to die. I, you know, after my near death experiences, I'm not afraid of dying. Um, I I, you know, it's not like I want to die tomorrow, but I could die tomorrow and be okay with my life. I, there's things I would like to do, but that's living, mm -hmm. right? And so if it's my time to be dead tomorrow, I could be okay with that because what we were just talking about earlier is living where you are and saying the things that you want to say. And, um, you know, my, my children have had a very unique experience in this world because their whole lifetime they've heard me talk about my death. And, you know, it's just a common part of our conversation that we talk about death. So that's not a scary topic in our family. Um, other people might think we're weird. <laughs> that, of course, is true. <laughs> um, but it's helpful because, you know, they know what I want and... They know what's going to happen. They don't wonder, you know, what kind of funeral does mom want? They don't wonder about that. They know that in my office there's a manila envelope that holds when I die. And in my office at home is a file. And when I die, you know, take this out and read this. And Honestly, that adds another element to why you should plan those things out because that just sounds so cool to have like in case of event break glass of you right. know I've got a secret envelope full of instructions of like you could make a scavenger hunt <laughs> do whatever you want like it, it's but it, it's not even a secret envelope no, because no, they know no. I mean we'll be driving down the road and some song will come on and I'm like hey this would be a great song for my funeral mm -hmm. what's this one called because Usually they know the names of the current title or something like that, so that's on a scrap of paper, and it's like, let's date this because otherwise you're going to be 
there for three hours playing all the songs <laughs> mom wants to be played. You she know? went through a real ACDC phase <laughs> in the 90s. And then... Jimmy flashback to Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then the Beatles. You got to have the Beatles. And you know, I mean, there's just... Do you find planning uh, funerals for people? Is there a lot of... Once people get over the hurdle of this is for me, that do, do people embrace that at all? Or is it... Well, you know, I've had a, a number of people now do what I've helped them create kind of pre-funeral funerals that they've had. Really? That um, I could tell you a couple examples of that. One is this wonderful woman that she was, she was dying and she was going to, she needed to stop her treatment because she understood that the effectiveness of her treatment was outweighed by all of the negative side effects and how hard it was making her quality of life. Yeah, there's limited, a, right? a real it, fine balance. Yeah, of... and it, when it flips, it flips, and the and the person knows because they can feel it, right? Yeah. And so she had come to me. She was a grandma, and she came to me, and she was, had been. She needed my help to tell her family that she was going to stop treatment because their response was, "Don't give up." Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. What did you say that nobody ever has a real cowardly? Nobody, like, lost the battle with, with cancer. cancer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. That's in the paper. I saw that again on Sunday. They lost their battle with cancer. It makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. We all die losers. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, that's good. Yeah. You know, so give up now, whatever. So um, anyway, so she and I talked about it and how to present that. And then um, we talked about how can she say her goodbyes and and then one of the things she wanted to do was she she knew that at funerals people said all the stuff and it's like why can't I be there for those things and I yes. want to say stuff yes right oh, I would never say this to her face but she's the most wonderful but say it to her face exactly <laughs> do it know? now and she had things she wanted to say to them yeah. right and so so we did a couple of things we um, we met with different developmental age groups okay. You know, so like we met with the grade school kids, so we could talk about this at their developmental level, and then we did the high school, the teenagers, and then we did the adult children, and then we we spoke with her husband, and that was hard for him. Um, and then we met as a whole group, so we could talk about the ritual or ceremony that she wanted to have, right? And... So actually, it was four generations because there was this seven-month-old baby that was there, too. It was very fun. Yeah. And so when they showed up to my office, they brought their priest, which I got to tell you, my heart almost jumped out of my head because I'm like, oh, my God, we're creating a ritual, and what is he going to think? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we all sat. You know, there's 19 of us in this room. Man. And, yeah, it's a big family. And so anyway, so what we talked about, because they already had, you know, like so many people, fire pits in their backyard. And so we talked about collecting the sticks, you know, how the trees give us offering all the time before you mow the lawn, you got to mm. pick those offerings up. It's mm-hmm. like, well, let's have, let's have a fire. Let's have all those sticks. And we talked about how to create a ceremony of a sacred fire, right? And... Um, do those those steps and then the, once it's a sacred fire everybody could come up and put a stick on the fire and tell grandma mom great grandma or whom whatever their relationship is right wife a story 
a thank you, a remembrance, and then she could talk to them, right? And and the rule was everybody else was going to be quiet because this was sacred time, one person speaking at a time. Yeah. And that there would be endless sticks. But everybody had to have a chance to go around once, and then they could, you know, they could keep doing it. And then grandma, mom, wife could say her response to each one of these until everything was spoken, right? And then we also created another um, thing that I had talked about that something similar we had done when my, my mother died was we created a, a cloth that we put um, my mom and dad's handprints in the center and then everybody else's handprints were around theirs, hmm. right? So it was a cloth and then we wrapped her body in that. So we were all holding oh. her, right? Well, that's really nice. And so I told them about that. And so what they did, because they had a lot of little kids, and so every they got those plaster of Paris things like those plates that you could do a handprint. Mm -hmm. And so everybody got to do a handprint, so they'd always be able to put their hand in Grandma's hand. Oh, right, that's so nice. And then they were going to go home. So we had this conversation about Grandma's dying, and Grandma wants to say goodbye, and they're going to have this this their their ceremony. Yeah. That's just private for just their family. And we talked about all of that, right? So as as they're leaving, the um, priest waited till the very end, and he asked if he could talk oh, to me. I was me. going to ask. I was going to ask and how I'm did like, the priest. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And so I had described the importance of ceremony and the three parts of ceremony and how you create a sacred space, a space, sacred fire, and then how you close it so that they could have hot dogs before they create it to be a sacred fire then it's, they can do their ceremony and then they close it and they could roast marshmallows mm. and it's not sacrilege mm. right and you know and i was nervous saying that because i'm like seriously in his terrain except it's how i live my life it's how i think about in my studies of i've done a lot of studying on faith and religions <laughs> and cultures and blah 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 anyway and um he said to me, so he said, I've never heard ceremony described the way that you describe it. Because I talked about it in regards to going into church and how you, how I always describe this is, you know, you can run, people that are going to an organized religion, let's say it's a church as opposed to a mosque, or right, mm -hmm. that in the sanctuary, using that terminology, you can screw around and run around in the church, right? In the sanctuary, you can run, right? Mm -hmm. But once the music starts, everything changes. True. Now, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the beginning, the opening to this is now creating sacred space. And you do the ritual, and then there's the music, and it closes that sacred space, and now you can run around again. Is it... Do you think that there is an element of that that is born of the shared agreement about it? That it, it basically, does it take more than one person then? I think that that's based on ancient, ancient historical ceremony. Sure. That that's, that if you think about humankind, that their first ceremonies were sitting around a fire. Mm-hmm. Right small communities that were working together to survive mm -hmm. and they 
we're honoring the stars and the earth, and we're living very sacredly and mm. spiritually. And this was the fire they cooked on. This is the fire that they did things, but then they shifted it. So when they were doing their sacred work, there's something that had to, there's offerings that are put into the fire. Then it's sacred, and there's offerings to say thank you to the spirit world. Um, so what I want to say is what he, a he asked me about that, and he said he'd never heard it defined so clearly, even when he was in seminary and all the years that he's preached. And he asked me if he could use that that week and talk about that in his sermon. You're kidding me. And I, I, my face probably looked just like yours. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, said, yes, <laughs> of course you can. For a monthly fee of five ninety nine. dollars <laughs> Yes, exactly. That is amazing. Right, but that's part of when we get, we, we lose, tr I have really worked hard to understand the essence of where do the belief systems come from. Yeah, so your study of a number of different faiths and how humanity intersects with faith, do you feel, well, what have you found? What have, what have been your findings that are worth noting and sharing in your opinion? So I have this interesting image of um, if, if, if this table represents whatever this world is <laughs> that we're in, that we think that this is a table. Yeah. Even though the quantum physicists will tell us that it's moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then up here is the other side, whatever that means, right? Yeah. And that... The next... Uh, the, the next phase or something like that. Sure. When we're not in this physical form anymore. Yep. So I was at a drive through at the bank, you know, and you put your money in the thing and it goes up in the tube yeah and i went oh, that's just like life okay so all of these different tubes are all these different organized religions and here's the path and you know you stand and, and you can be inside this tube and here's we've got how we're doing the answers how this is you know and they're all going to the same place they're all coming from the same place um, so there's people that are 100% in the tubes. I think about many of the people that I know, particularly women, that I would say are half in and half out of the tube hmm. because they love the ritual. Catholicism has beautiful rituals and different ways of uh, belief that are helpful to people in prayer, but they don't respect women. At least that's how a lot of women feel. And so that part of it, they're not inside the tube, but this part, right? Yeah. And then I see that there's people that aren't inside any tube. And so for me, what I have looked for is what are common threads amongst all tubes? Sure. That's what resonates with me. And is it possible that there is a tube there that that person just can't see it yet, that they haven't found whatever it is that helps them understand how to go from here to there. I think that we all have our individual path. Okay. And it's just whether or not I need somebody else to outline it for me. And I think it's helpful to some people to have it be outlined. Um, and for other people, it's not. That is something I wrestle with, with, um, well, getting back to linear time, too, that the choices that we make lead us to where we are, that it's not, that it's, and we kind of talked about this the last time we got together too, the idea that 
you can throw the dice and however the dice roll, that's how they're going to land and that there is a finality of that moment where, oh, snake eyes. Like, Mm. it could have been anything up until the moment that it was snake eyes. And then from then on out, that moment was always snake eyes. So when you look at your life, you can see this path looking back and I can see all of the things along the way that led me to here. But looking out forward, I can't see what those choices are. And that for me right now, having a clear path is not about physical guide markers of do this and then do this and then do this and you'll have some satisfaction here. It's it's about kind of feeling my way through it in that kung fu sense that I talked about of I'm working on that because when we talked about being in the moment anxiety and dread or not anxiety anxiety happiness and being present and how my daughter helps me deal with that and be you know in these peaceful moments that 15% of memories my particular swing towards happiness there is because I have what I would wager is a, and anybody listening to this for the past 15 episodes would certainly scream it now, uh, a problem with anxiety and uh, uh, depression and uh, a number of different things that I'm working on. But that I'm looking to balance the scale in the other direction. That's how I use those moments to help me understand that, that I'm shifting the entire spectrum and that I can't know that happiness without that sadness and that's something I've come to time and again on this podcast that there's the reminder of this too shall pass the great moments that the times that I love they're fleeting I see you know we've been in this house for like seven years now my wife and I've been together for like 15 years that doesn't seem possible and yet all these good things Sometimes you're going to be sad. All these sad things, yeah, you're going. It's going to be better sometimes. It's you have to work to choose that though. It's not a relinquishment of responsibility to the universe, but it's me trying to find the ability to trust my compass. That if I can work towards what I believe is general happiness, I know that I'm not working toward constant bliss. You know that mm. that would be short-sighted. You know that would get so boring. And sometimes you got to feel down. And last night, uh, every time at bedtime, my daughter gets uh, a cup of milk and she picks out two books and we read two books, uh, the three of us, and uh, go to bed. But then last couple of nights, she's picked out The Giving Tree. Mm-hmm. And I cannot get through that book without breaking down. I like By the end of the book, it's always me asking my wife, how did I do that time? Did I keep it together okay? Because I just go to pieces I don't know what it is but every time she grabs that book I just think oh I'm not ready for this oh here we go like I know I'm gonna be sad but it's it's not a bad feeling it's not that I don't want to be sad it's that oh I'm gonna go through a thing and I'm gonna feel better on the other side but like here we go I'm gonna get punched in the face and I'll be fine later but like (laughs) it's just like it is going to happen there will be sadness and without that sadness I don't have the joy of sitting there reading her a book like I that I don't know I'm just I'm I'm kind of all of these things are kind of hitting on the same chord for me that is helping me understand where I'm at with these things in my life mm-hmm. when can I say something about that please when um so I'm just going to say this and, and and we can pick it apart should you choose to <laughs> um, here we go 
when they sent me back into my body after my second near-death experience, they told me two things. They whispered, I, the only way to describe it is that they whispered two things in, in my ear as I was coming back into my body. And um, one was to have all of your feelings, that they're your guide. Okay? And so I spent, I think about that a lot. And in our, in our psychologically structured culture that you and I live in, okay? Because we live with people that don't have the same outlook that you were just describing. Part of the damage that I think that psychology has done is that there is good, a definition of good feelings and bad feelings. Uh. And you're working really hard to challenge that. that like, you know, there's like anger's bad and sadness is bad and happiness is good and joy is good. And so we get into this dualistic that I should be, right, in, in this thing. And so their comment of have all of them, they're your guide. So let's take anger for a second. It's not that having anger is a bad thing. Anger is a really important emotion because it tells us something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. What's going on? What could be bad is how I act it out. Yes. Okay? Yeah. But if I'm listening to their encouragement, they're your guide. They're guiding me. Yeah. That I have that feeling. So and that's part of having that self-awareness, being mindful, being present. It's like my body is interacting in a feeling state. And you know this from your baby when she was first born. When she, as her feelings started coming online, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, because like she didn't have fear until like eight or nine months, which is why stranger anxiety comes in then. Yes, it does. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so as her feelings came online, they started to guide her in her interactions. So that's, if we think about it from that point of view, that I'm having feelings and I have anxiety. So from a physiological point of view, if, I, if you or I or anybody was wired up when we are experiencing anxiety or ex anxiety about something, like I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or something. Sure. Or I'm wired up and I'm excited about and I'm eight and what's my Christmas present going to be that's under the tree tomorrow? My body response is the exact same thing. Oh, I never considered that. Okay, so because it's both the unknown and it's that shaky, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's what I'm thinking that shifts it. Yeah, yeah, what tips it one way or the other. Exactly. So if you're letting them guide you, is that anxiety is helping me or depression is helping me. And I, we could talk a lot about depression and how... That is, a, if we talked about that, is I'm going deep and internal to understand some things that I don't know yet. So um, some of the Native peoples that I studied with, they talked about that going internal is going into the lower world where there's seeds of the unknown, things that I either haven't resolved yet or I haven't learned yet. Interesting. And so I need to go down deep 
internally, right? Which is a, like, remember when you were in fourth grade and you um, were germinating seeds? It has to be a dark, damp place. That's called a womb. Yeah. Okay, which is also feminine. And so in our very patriarchal society, that means it must be bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the lesson that I got very early on, that uh, feeling a lot of feelings and expressing those feelings is somehow not right yeah don't do that unless they're happy think happy today you see that yellow smiley face too Mm -hmm. okay so if we can so for me in my learning and trying to understand what happened to me and the information i receive being on the other side um my sidestep in this moment is knowing there's people going, oh, rolling their eyes going, that's not possible. But whatever. I could talk about some of the things that I've learned in my interviews and talking with lots of people. But anyway. Whatever you'd like to share, consider this just, your time because that's a, a fascinating. Yeah. That, well, we could always talk about that. Um, but I think feelings are really critical. We are a feeling entity um, biosphere bag or whatever phrase we want to use, our body feels. So if we stop thinking that that's bad, <laughs> yeah, that's a really and that they're that it's helpful to me. It's well, and your body responds to that too. That I've been feeling some stress lately that I know is manifesting in my back and mm-hmm. I, my posture is terrible. It's always been a, a thing for me, but I can feel how much it's really pinned back there. Your body responds to it. It's just how much I want to listen to it as far and, as what so, it does. Yeah, so it's teasing. And so what you said earlier about your daughter and helping her get out the door because she's feeling. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is you're helping her navigate her feelings. You're validating when she says no. Because it's like, I'm really having such a good time right now. Why would I want to change? It's like, that's right. You know, it's like I'm eating a banana split. Why don't I eat too? Mm -hmm. Well, because you will get sick. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the learning process. That's right. And so it's like, okay. And then you help her see, but you could also enjoy this too. And you're going to go see your friends that you really enjoy playing with too. Mm -hmm. And she just doesn't have the cognitive structure to hold those two things at once. Uh, So you're helping her move from one thing to the next. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Meanwhile, validating... That she has this emotional experience because they're guiding her. Yeah, that's what I don't want to do is tell her it's wrong to feel any certain way. And that's something I've worked on on myself is that so long as my logic is sound enough (laughs) and that I'm rational, I would not do well to say that it's wrong to feel a certain way. You know, that that the more in tune and in touch with my sense of self and my, you know, my understanding of who I am – that my feelings aren't bad. They're just a representation of how I'm feeling. Yeah. And that's... And why? Yeah. To be curious. Mm -hmm. Isn't this interesting? Is... So are you comfortable sharing anything from your trip to the other side? The mention of the word they is... Sure. Intriguing, to say the least. So so I got to... What I think is very fortunate for me is I had two near-death experiences. Uh, Because the first time when I was on the ceiling looking down at them working on me I was freaked out I was like freaked out it's like get back in that body oh really <laughs> seriously know? it's like oh it's like <gasps> you know 
yes. Oh, no. Did it feel like floating away? Like, Well, no, it didn't feel like floating away. It was just like I knew I wasn't in my body. Oh. You know, and it was weird. I could see them, and it's just like, no, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, so, and there's some things that happened that um, it's hard for my family, so I'm not going to talk about some of the things, right? Totally fine. Because if they should be uh, so kind to listen to what you and I are having a conversation about, I it would make them very uncomfortable. So I'm not going to... So certainly let's just go back into my body. So yep. but the second time, um, and that at that point my body was really breaking down and I was actively dying and I was yeah. well under ninety pounds and I couldn't walk and things weren't good. Yeah. Um and I ended up back in the emergency room. Um because my heart was stopping and it was racing. So you were, you were so very the second sick. time I was in the hospital, they took me to the hospital, and and um, so I was in the emergency room, and same thing happened. I was out of my body, and I was watching them work on me, and I was so relieved to be out of pain because my oh, body really? was in so much pain. At, at that time, they never gave any pain medication, so I was just, oh. I was in so much pain, and I was so relieved to not be in pain. It was just so great. And I could see them working on me, and so I, you know, I I was there before. So it's like, oh, here I am, right? I'm out. And I can only describe it in physical terms because it's the only terminology we have. Yeah, I've tried to describe hallucinogens and the feeling of spirituality after the fact, and it never, nothing will ever... And especially in English. English is a very flat language. It is so non-spiritual. It's just crazy. So, yeah. Or it's, it's not it's as not romantic as it enough. could be. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. So anyway, so I would say that what I did is I turned and I looked up. And that's when it was kind of like that whoosh. And, the, and then I was... I was on the other side, and I could. There was a, there was a line where there's that line where if you cross that line, you cannot come back. Okay, oh, wow. so I was on this side of the line. It was that perfect temperature people talk about. It was absolutely perfect, and there was music. It was just that wonderful music. I couldn't describe it for you, but it was like everything, and I understood everything. Okay, there was that immediate understanding. And on the other side of the line, they were all there. And so how we could talk about this for a long time and about what I've experienced in talking to other people and reading about others with near-death experiences. And I believe that people use words to describe who's there, who's sacred to them, who's really important to them. And for me, I didn't need human form faces. No. There were souls there. Okay. Okay. And it was like, in this physical world, seeing the people in the Mormon tabernacle choir when they're in the risers and they just go and they go and they go and they've got the robes on, it was like that. And Alex Gray, do you know Alex Gray? No. Uh, So should we meet again, I will bring you some Alex Gray paintings because he's painted this. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, so it's like I see all these people, all of these beings, souls, 
And there was those that came forward to talk to me, and I could see where I belonged there. It was like my spot um, was like on a dimmer switch, and it was just dimmed down. And I knew that if I stayed, and that was part of my argument, I did not want to come back. Um, So I was arguing with them, I don't want to come back. I was like, I don't want to go back in that body. It's so broken. It's so painful. It's so, so hard. Um, and they don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now yeah. I get it, but they don't understand. Yeah. And it's like, I see where I belong. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there was a lot of different um, conversations that happened, a lot of things they showed me and explained to me to help me decide to come back. Really? Wow. Um why do you think you were able to do that and others don't? That you were able to be aware of it when so many people don't seem to have that opportunity to consciously experience something like that. Do you think there's a particular reason or is it just... I think a lot of people have that experience. There's a lot of people that are afraid to talk about it. I didn't talk about it for a long time because... Um, I really, I really felt no one would believe me. I mean, people, when I, part of my coming back, part of my resistance was I knew that I would have a spontaneous remission because that was the only way for me to continue living. As part of a deal, basically, I'll go back, but. (laughs) No, it wasn't part of the deal. It was the only way. It's that's just part of what I knew would have to happen because my body was dying. Oh, wow. So okay. I'm just knowing that, look, the only way for this equipment to keep going is if there's a complete and total remission. And lo and behold, you step back into the body. Well, that's both because and therefore there is a complete and total remission. And I also knew that nobody would believe me. So <clears throat> how similar to... Uh, friend and previous guest Brian talked about this was not an immediate thing that he came to. You didn't just wake up from the bed screaming, I've seen something like years down the line or did this take you? Yeah, you know, so there was a couple other parts about that. But um, actually when I realized that, so for months afterwards, I continued on a death trip and and I came back in and I, I told my doc, I'm stopping my treatment because I stopped my treatment. So I'm scared to say that out loud publicly because I don't want people to think if they stop their treatment, they'll have a spontaneous remission. Right. That's in no way advocating for that or some kind of statement of support. That's just where your personal journey took you. Yeah, where it took me. And, um, And I don't know why that happened. Sure. Okay. I don't know why. You know, any kind of human knowing that if you do this a you will get that b and you'll be alive it's just like i know i know um but i so i after that i had stopped my treatment and i started to get better because remember i did have this broken down body Mm -hmm. that had to get better right Mm -hmm. and so i continued on a death trip and when i left the hospital um, my doc said to me I want to see you in at maximum six weeks 
yeah. having stopped my treatment. And he, um, so I'm like, okay, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I continued on my death trek, you know, saying goodbye to people, taking the last road trip with my sister. And, you know, I was able to eat. I was gaining weight. I was feeling stronger. I felt like it was um, because I had stopped my treatment. Hmm. And, you know, I never thought that I was better. Because nobody ever thought, I mean, everybody was, and you're dying, and we know you'll die from this. There was never any gray, ever. Mm. And, which is a whole weird thing to have everybody look at you and think you're going to be dead soon. Mm. Um, which is why I can talk to people. <laughs> it's like, I get that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the look that people give you, like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like that the death look, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so... It was probably like three and a half months later, I um, went back into the oncologist, right? My hair had started to grow back in, and um, <laughs> so the person at the desk, whom I knew, I mean, I knew all these people because they saw me all the time, right? And I, her eyes did that cartoon thing, you know, it's like, <laughs> rrr, rrr, you know, in and out and in and out, you know? <laughs> and what I learned later is that her job was to find people in the obituaries so they could send cards. And they were convinced they'd missed me. Oh, my gosh. And they felt terrible. Oh, my that gosh. That they hadn't sent a card. And they, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, yeah. So what happened, so meanwhile, we were talking about when did I think I had a near-death experience. So what happened is my oncologist said, he wanted to do surgery because what he was expecting is that my body would be filled with cancer again, and he wanted to see if he could get a hold of it. Cause he... And so it's like, okay, you know, whatever. I'm feeling better. You know, I'm stronger. And um, so did that, and he couldn't find any cancer. And he just kept opening me farther and farther. My zipper just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger oh, and longer. Um, and so when I came to which we had a very different conversation than we had before you know he just said the only reason I can't find cancer and the only reason you're alive is because of what you did what we did we should you should have died many times right oh man and I didn't understand that and so then let's fast forward about four years maybe five years because I my goal was never to be a therapist Okay, so, but I was working with clients by then, and you know, I'd done a lot of work around being alive and not being dead, which is also another thing to, you know, you're planning on being dead, and then you're not dead. Yeah, really. <laughs> Suddenly you're back on the system, you've got to pay your taxes, and <laughs> yes, milk gone bad. Um, and I'm sitting with a client who had a near-death experience, was flatline. He was, both times happened to me, I was in the hospital, but... Neither time did anybody know that's what was happening to me, okay? Mm -hmm. He was flatlined. They knew he had died, and they were bringing him back. And so he's telling me about his experience and about he used words similar to, and he could feel it, okay? Yeah. And it's like I'm going to the simultaneous. It's like, that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my In God. In my head. Yeah. 
you know, and of course, in, in graduate school, I had read all the research on near death, and I've always been interested in death and all these different cultures. I mean, this part was not new to me. Right. Um, and so then I went back and reread all that stuff, and it's like, yes, yes, yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, so it wasn't until this client, unbeknownst to him, he didn't. Hopefully, he didn't know I was having this whole other reaction <laughs> going on while he's telling me about his experience. You're sitting back in a chair with the notepad, freaking out, just like, mm-hmm, don't yeah. let him see you screaming. Mm-hmm, That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, so, God, yeah, Brenda, so, this is amazing. I just, I can't think you. I want to ask, I, I want to wrap up here, but I want to ask two questions before I do so. Well, three, really. One is... Why do you think that there seems to be a zeitgeist right now about death and dying and our inevitable demise that we're not talking about it? And then the the, the unrelated follow-up question is, what's next for you? So first of all, you and I have talked off mic about this a little bit, but why do you think that this is something that personally I'm experiencing a real Bader-Meinhof phenomenon where – now that I'm doing this, I'm seeing this everywhere. Yeah. And I'm getting a feeling it's not just me. I think it is something that's happening. Do you have anything that you... I think that's true. I I do. I, I liken it to, you know, when someone gets a, a Nobel Prize, let's say for some scientific study, and then what comes out afterwards is, well, somebody in this part of the world, in another part of the world, that there was three or four different people coming across that same discovery. Yeah. So at the same time, right? And then there's this argument about who really discovered it first kind of thing, okay? But so, more so that it's at the that there's a collective unconsciousness almost? Yeah, that's... kind of that whole hundredth monkey theory. Yes, 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 okay. Right? And so that it's coming in that we've, collectively we've raised our consciousness to a place where we're ready to bring something in and turn things over right and that there's some lead players and i think about that as um well doesn't matter what my image is (laughs) (laughs) i see in pictures from my near-death experiences that that's just how i am anyway so yes i think that's the same thing is that because i've been working in this terrain for a long time and now it's everybody's not everybody, but it certainly is at this turning over point. Okay. And I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm happy that um, you're doing this. I think this is really, really important. Thank you. And likewise, you are, I feel like I'm sitting here at the, at the feet of the master, you know, somebody that's, I'm way outclassed and outgunned here, but I want to ask the right questions, but I'm just terrified of like, oh, but no, that's not going to be, I'm just making references to horror movies now. You know, I need to <laughs> make sure that I'm being as reverent and respectful. So I, I really, A, just think you're doing the proverbial Lord's work. You're just, you, what you're doing is a benevolence for all of humanity. I'm trying to imitate that in my own broken down, you know, carnival-esque way to ask these questions if for nobody else the benefit that I've gotten out of it and if anybody the fact that there are people in the UK and Australia listening to this first of all hello thank you and I, I it amazes me that anybody wants to hear this and hear these questions because I can feel people pull back from this so I think there's good being done here I don't want to get a you know <clears throat> toot my own horn and you know i get so high and mighty i'm just a kid in the kid i'm 35 person in a basement you know and then 
my daughter can hear this 20 years from now, mm-hmm. you know. But so you mentioned the fellowship is reaching a conclusion. What lies in the future for you, or are you not thinking in those terms? I have two things that I'm working on that are um, two threads that are coming from the fellowship. Because the Bush Fellowship is an interesting form of a grant because it's not so much about an endpoint. It's more about a launching pad that after it's formally finished that more things would come, like a mushroom mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. So one is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Theater for Public Policy. I have not. Oh, they're very fun. So Tane Danger, it's that's his theater. And... Um, so I presented with Dr. Ann McIntosh last year with Ontane's theater. And he, he, so let me tell you the structure. It's very, very fun. He, so I'll just say it in terms of what Ann and I did. We were on stage with Tane, and Tane was asking us very serious questions about end of life. And Ann being an ER doc, right, she's dealing with people that don't have these conversations and are in life-threatening positions and she's trying to help family members make decisions right so she would really like everybody to have their paperwork done and and attached to their bodies <laughs> yeah jeez, oh, yeah i'm just kidding Put, but tie your mittens to your jacket and, <laughs> that's right you know okay. um and i'm talking about death is healing and teens asking us questions and there's the audience and on stage with us is improv artists and so then after like 30 35 minutes the three of us get off stage, and the improv artists then do stuff with what we did. Absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And then Ann and I go back on stage, and Tane's out in the audience asking questions. People get to ask questions of us, and you know now they're comfortable talking about death, and they have very specific questions. And so they're so then they ask, and and you can find this stuff on their website, um, our all of their shows, but you can find. And so it was wonderful. So it was lat. 2018 Memorial Day that night, Monday night, it was a sold-out show, and they had to turn people away. That's amazing. Oh, and this is at uh, Bryant Lake Bowl? Is yes, that right? absolutely. So the three of us have been talking about taking the show on the road. Oh, you're And kidding. taking it to different communities and having somebody from the community and then having simulta- having also having part of the show be small group conversations that we can interface back and forth. And also with the improv artists, because Anne and I have lots of content of information, but, you know, having some humor and levity. So that's one thing that we're working hard to. So if somebody would like us to come to their location, please find us. The Theater for Public Policy. Yep. Call Tane Danger. Okay. And Um, what's the other thing that is growing out of the mushroom? I did what I referred to as a family conversation talking about preparing for end of life and this what I refer to as the messy middle Hmm. with 15 people and I am going to put that on my website to be able to come and do that like in churches or small communities or with other families um, to help facilitate the conversation. Wow. I can think of well, gee, my own family that I'd like to have that happen with, so I will. <laughs> sure. You know, because that would be a great, I'm very comfortable, and then, and people don't have to worry about protecting me. Ah. So they can push against me. Sure. Right? Because they don't have to even like me. They can say, hey, listen, lady. <laughs> That's exactly right. Coming in here telling me who I can leave this to. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, very cool. This has been absolutely, for me, absolutely enthralling. I'm sure other people will find it as interesting. This has been so much fun for me, and I've gotten a lot, and I will continue to dig into this as I go through and edit all of this and figure out, like, huh, I really wasn't asking the right question there, and I'm going to go back and get more and more out of it. So thank you so much. Is there anything you would want to let people know just to put it out there to the universe? One, your website, again, is www.healingthroughlifethrough is spelled correctly, dot com. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And then uh, anything that you'd like to just put out there, whether it's, you know, work on the zipper merge or read this book or... Oh, I wish they would work on the zipper merge. (laughs) Goodness sakes. Yep. (laughs) We're not good at that here. No, we're not. Be gentle. Be gentle. Be living your life. I like that. With ease. Thank you, Brenda. You're welcome. 